it wasn't the institutions that were protecting us because there were no institutions. No one knew what a democracy was like, you know, no offense to France, uh, you know, no one knew what like that experiment was going to be like over here. And so it depended on who were those people at that time, not to name any names, but you can probably guess some individuals that that are in power today. What if they were the George Washington at that time? How differently would our country have looked like? I think a lot of Americans like to look back on the fact that we've enjoyed this experiment over time as because we're Americans. And I look back at that seminal moment with Washington and I say, maybe we're not good. Maybe we just got really lucky early on and we had the right person at the right time to put us on this path. We're not there yet, but I think the ideals are there and, and they're worth fighting for. If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. Okay, I think we should be good. And I'm also recording here as a backup, so it's all good. I am Stan Bertolo, and this is Back in America, a podcast where I explore the American's identity, culture, and value. My guest today is a retired lieutenant colonel a PhD, and the founding executive director at the Buccino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University. He spent the first half of his 20-year Army career in operational assignment as an Apache helicopter pilot, including combat deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan. From 2012 to 2018, he was an academy professor in the Department of Social Science and the director of the Combating Terrorism Center, CTC, at the U.S. Military Academy. He is known for his public research on terrorism and counterterrorism. He holds a BS from the U.S. Military Academy in U.S. History, an MA in International Relations from St. Mary's University in Texas, and an MA and a PhD in Political Science from Stanford University. As the CTC director, he was invited to testify in front of Congress and frequently briefed the nation's top counterterrorism leaders. In 2019, he founded Top Mental Game LLC, which provides professional coaching and mental skills training for elite high school, college, and professional athletes. I am delighted to welcome Lieutenant Colonel Brian C. Price. Thanks, Stan. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to be speaking with you, Brian. And I have the feeling that you may be instrumental in my explorations of the American identity, culture, and value. So let's jump into it. Most Americans like sport and respect the troops. And you embody the two. In 2019, when you started Temptal Game, why did you choose to coach athletes? Sure. So... Um I've been an athlete all my life. Um, I grew up playing uh, multiple sports uh, as a kid. I played three sports in high school. I played football, uh, basketball, and baseball. And then when I went to West Point for college, um, I was I played Division One baseball there. And so uh, when I came back to teach at West Point in the second half of my military career, 
Uh, I was a faculty member, but I was also able to serve as an assistant coach on the baseball team there too. And they had this great place there called the Center for Enhanced Performance, which uh, provided a lot of uh, sports psychology concepts to the Division One teams. And I felt like uh, it's a natural, you know, it's one of my passions. Leadership is one of my passions and sports is one of my passions. And uh, starting Top Metal Game was a way to kind of give back to both. Yeah, the, you get the the best of both worlds, right? I was wondering what what kind of leadership skills um, you think that you learn in your military career that you teach today to your civilian clients. Sure. So um, I think the best way to kind of sum it up uh, in terms of or the leadership skills that I learned in the military that now I am providing to the students at Seton Hall in the Bucino Leadership Institute. Um, essentially, it kind of boils down to be, how do you be the best servant leader that you can be? Um, and servant leadership is about, you know, uh, I think the best kind of metaphor for it is in traditional kind of leadership studies in the past, like in the you know second half of the 20th century, uh, you might think of a pyramid, right, where the workers are at the bottom, the employees, and then middle management, and then up at the top are uh, senior leaders. And I think both the military And, um, you know, a, a couple of these other, uh, you know, things that are uh, other fields that, that work in leadership. The most effective leadership is, is actually servant leadership. And it's where you inverse that triangle upside down so that, you know, the, the senior leader is actually working. When that person comes to work every morning, they're working uh, for their employees, not the other way around. And I think, uh, you know, um, leading by example Uh, is obviously a, a characteristic trait of, of effective leadership in the military. And um, yeah, that's what we're trying to do with our students at Seton Hall. Let's go back to the beginning of your own career and, and maybe your own life. Um, as I mentioned, you dedicated your life to this country. And I'm very curious to hear how or who uh, made you want to join the Army. How old were you when you decided that this was going to be your life? When I was a senior looking at different colleges, I wanted a place where I would be challenged. Um, money was also a, uh, you know, a, a driving factor. And for those of you that don't know, um, you know, you can go to the U.S. Military Academy or the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy. And I don't want to call it free because you have to pay back the time um, you have to serve in, 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 in the military for uh, five or six years as an initial commitment. But I went to on a bunch of different recruiting visits and the one place where I felt like home, like this was with me was, was West Point and the U S military Academy. And, um, you know, I knew I was going to be challenged. I knew that like, I was not going to be a financial burden on my parents. It was an opportunity to play division one baseball. And as a kid, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. So I felt like, well, if someone's going to tell me what to do for the next six years after graduation, You know, that would be uh, I, I was okay with that to see if I could find my way. And the ironic thing was I thought I was going to get out of the military after my initial commitment. And uh, the joke was on me because 20 years later, I was uh, <laughs> I, I was I was still in and I, I, I wouldn't regret it for a second. What's your best memory from that time? It's interesting because I, I can say the same thing about sports or, or what I'm doing now. I, I think the best memories always relate around the people in the military you are obviously put in a crucible of uh, several different moments where um, all of the veneer gets removed, 
right? And you are in a very stressful situation with people that you care deeply about. And so to me, it's those moments when you are facing incredible odds and uh, unbelievable adversity, but you're doing it with people that you care about. And, um, you know, I could point to a, a ton of those, a ton of those moments, uh, but that's the, those are the moments. And I can say the same thing about my experiences in sports or, you know, in the academic world, um, that that's, and, and look, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's, it's well known that there's such a, a strong bond with, hmm. you know, the folks in the military. So people, well, talking of people and talking of West Point, um, As I prepared this interview, I went to the website of the Academy and noticed that they had published a note regarding the, the current events. Uh, I wonder if you saw it. I did. I have. Yep. Gerald Williams, uh, that, that kind of made the rounds on the internet um, amongst graduates. And uh, yes, I, I have seen it. And I have it in front of me. <laughs> Good. Can I ask you to maybe um, share this letter or part of it? With the audience. Interestingly, it starts out with uh, USMA, which is the acronym for the U.S. Military Academy, and it says USMA teammates, which I think is is very telling from a leadership perspective. It said, as you are aware, our country is experiencing civil unrest. During these unsettling times, I want us to recommit to eradicating racism from within our ranks by treating all people with dignity and respect. We must show one another the kindness and compassion necessary to build cohesion and trust in our community. The oath to support and defend the Constitution binds us together as one team, dedicated to defending our nation and upholding its values. We strive to embody these ideals and aspire to live by our core values of duty, honor, and country. Every word, every action, and every attitude should uphold these values so that we may live and lead honorably. The nation looks to West Point as an, as an example of what is possible when people from diverse backgrounds unite and aspire to honorable living. Consider how your words, actions, and attitudes impact other people. Are you building up others and making them feel valued? Are you strengthening trust within the team? Are you extending forgiveness and actively listening to other points of view? Are you inspiring others to greatness? If so, encourage others to do the same. If not, then choose to improve immediately. Muster the moral courage necessary to confront and solve problems with effective, honest, and empathetic dialogue that seeks solutions rather than sowing seeds of division and disunity. I am proud to serve alongside you as we pursue excellence while respecting the dignity of our teammates. Together, let us show the nation that their trust in us is well-placed. Very respectfully, General Darrell A. Williams. Wow. Wow. So when I read those lines, I couldn't help but try to read between those lines. On one hand, it felt like sort of a fluffy, feel-good, patriotic statement. On the other, sentences such as consider how your words, action, and attitude impact the other, or muster the courage necessary to confront and solve problems with effective, honest, and empathic dialogue, made me really wonder if we should look into this address as a message to the current administration. What do you make of it? First off, I, I think the sentiment behind this, um, you know, reflects a lot of, of the military and specifically, you know, the, the officer, officer corps that comes out of the U.S. Military Academy. Um, you know, I think 
when you want to look at uh, what right looks like in terms of uh, race relations, um, about you know what a as a close to a meritocracy as you can kind of find, West Point is one of those places where um, uh, you know we like to think that it is representative of the entire country. There are cadets from all fifty states. There are cadets from every walk of life. Um, we we are not there yet when it comes to um, ethnicity or gender, but those are important you know metrics for the administration in order to kind of get to. And I think that it's almost like a microcosm of the country, uh, to be honest with you. And, you know, all those things about when he talks about living honorably and mustering the moral courage. I mean, those those things are not I, I will tell you, they're not fluff to those that are at the academy. Uh, just to give you one quick anecdote. Um, and maybe you have heard of this or maybe not. But there is a there's an honor code at West Point says that cadets won't lie, cheat or steal or tolerate those who do. And they are they are serious about that. Um, and so, you know, it's not just about living honorably. But um, if you see someone else behaving in a way that is antithetical, whether it's lie, cheating or stealing, it's it's your duty to call that out. And if you don't and you get caught and you knew about it beforehand, you also face consequences of potentially being removed from the academy. So, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a strong address by, by General Williams. And to my second point, do you think it's a, it's a message to the administration? Uh, oh, I can say kind of categorically, like this message was not directed externally. It was directed internally. Um, to 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 uh yeah but by no means was this directed um out uh by any means um now this you know could the administration uh uh apply some of this and and maybe <laughs> um uh do it i would i would i would concur with that i think uh and not just the administration i think you know any american or any corporation or any organization in the united states can benefit from that type of uh message and that type of sentiment for sure Okay. Well, I, I, I once again uh, want to ask uh, the man of the military here, uh, James Mattis, the former defense secretary, described Trump's as a threat to the Constitution. And he wrote that Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people. He does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. So as a uh, as a military man, as a leadership expert, as a strategist, what is Trump doing? Yeah, so this is one where um, I know the military is kind of uh, conflicted in this. So uh, first, let me kind of state, um, I have the utmost respect for General Mattis and what he's done. Um, and his his career, I think, has proven that he is he's like, He is a true kind of warrior scholar um, uh, and, and well-respected by uh, almost, I don't know anybody that doesn't respect General Mattis in the, in the military, to put it that way. Um, and there is a long line um, of, in the military, uh, you know, even dating back to like pre-World War II times, of it trying to be as apolitical of an entity as possible. So uh, you will not find, like in other countries, you will see you know, the military kind of dabble in politics or try to do stuff behind the scenes. And in the military, uh, at least in the U.S. military, there is a kind of a, an ethic where uh, there is the commander in chief 
and there is uh, civilian rule of the military, and that's respected. Um, afterwards, you know, once you retire, it's, inter it's interesting to see general officers, and this is a trend that I know a lot of my colleagues have written on about, of um, what is the role of former general officers after they retire um, when it comes to getting involved in, in politics and, and, and making comments. This is what I'll say about General Mattis. Um, you know, his military credentials are impeccable. He served in the administration, so he has a front row view of what went on. Um, now, you know, again, where how you feel about uh, General Mattis's comments probably, uh, you know, will split up along partisan lines. Uh, what I will tell you that is um, I have no reason to doubt any of his words when it comes to his credibility. So what kind of strategy is Trump playing? I think right now, you know, um, obviously this is a difficult time for any administration when it comes to uh, the civil unrest that we're facing, the pandemic that's going on, um, what's happened to the economy, um, and our country is is deeply hurting. Um, and then on top of all that, you have a, a re-election coming up. <laughs> and so, uh, look, I, I, you know, when it comes to a, a strategy for all this, I think, you know, I, I would be hard pressed to say that we have a strategy um, at this point for solving all those things. Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see what comes out in this election to see if uh, whoever's going to be the next president, whether it's going to be President Trump for a second term or uh, President, um, sorry, uh, Vice President Biden is, is, is the new president, whether or not they have a solution to, to solve some of this stuff. Um, Lord knows we need it. Joe Biden has predicted that a military will escort Donald Trump from the White House should uh, the president lose in November and refuse to leave office. Is that even possible? Do you see the army stepping in and, and doing that? The military, um, you know, even though the, the, the president is the commander in chief in terms of formal authority, we swear an oath as officers when we take the oath every time that we are promoted Um, and when you and when you get in the military, you know, you swear an oath not to the president. You swear an oath to defend and support the Constitution of the United States. And so, you know, in this case, if there is a if the people vote in president, I'm sorry, Vice President Biden to be the president, then there should be a, a peaceful transition of power. So what you're saying is that if it is not the case, the military will honor their oath to the Constitution and will step in to make sure the Constitution is respected. Has that ever happened in history? No, not that I know of in terms of uh, presidents leaving, where a, a president has lost an election and has had to been forcibly removed from the White House. Knowing Trump, do you think that would be feasible? Um, <laughs> he's full of surprises. So, uh, look, um, I would hope that President Trump would understand the impact that that that, that move would have um, on the country kind of moving forward. And uh, uh, but he has been known to um, surprise us before. And so I hope that is not one surprise that he has left up his sleeve. I hope the process you know, works itself out and um, and it's respected by both candidates. All right. So we mentioned the civil unrest and. Um... I'm wondering how you, as a white American man, what you've personally learned from the conversation that this country has had about race and inequality? 
Yeah, this is interesting. Um, you know, I've had obviously a lot of different conversations with um, with people since you know the unrest started, and I'll say this: you know, what the two kind of biggest places that have shaped my my own personal race relations um, are kind of two two mediums. One is the sports world, and the second is the military. And in both of those, and I think this is probably gets to like when you're trying to aspire to achieve some larger goal bigger than yourself. And you are in those moments that I talked earlier about, about um, adversity and, you know, is having that veneer stripped away. Um, race doesn't matter in those moments. Um, you know, uh, religion, ethnicity, sexuality doesn't matter in those moments. And so it's been really painful to watch what's happened in this country, you know, in, in the past month. I'm a, I'm a white male, right? I mean, um, when you look at, at the advantages that I've had over my lifetime and you ask yourself, is my success or the things that I have achieved, how much of that has been based off of this system that has been built? On the flip side, you know, you ask yourself, well, how do we make that system better so that we are more more equal and and aspiring to those goals that you know our forefathers kind of talked about in terms of making this place um, all where all men are created equal. You can obviously add women to that now. So it, it, it pains me. I, I think what I have learned personally in this whole thing, I don't think that the average American, particularly the average white person, has a very good understanding of what it's like to grow up in this country as a minority. In this case, we'll just talk about black Americans. I certainly don't have any clue of what that of what that would be like. And I know that I, you know, I've listened to previous episodes and I know that you've had other people on here that have shared that experience. And it's been kind of eye-opening to me. On the flip side, I would say that I also think that the average American has zero clue about the pressures and um, the adversity that an inner city cop has to go through on a daily basis. And um, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, like it's very easy to get outraged these days. Pick your poison. I'll use the you know the the terminology of the far right. If you want to take a look at anarchists and looters and violent protesters doing horrific things and acting you know um, horribly in a violent way, I'm not talking about the nonviolent protesters. Then go flick on Fox News, right? And you will probably see one or two clips that. You know, even if you are on the left, you look at it, you go, oh, my gosh, like this is this is horrible. Equally, if you want to look at, you know, your the greatest hits album of police brutality and police doing horrific things to uh, what we you believe is ostensibly peaceful protesters, well, then go click on CNN or another you know venue. And like, I don't think that we're getting the whole picture here. And to me, unless we get the folks that can um, articulate what that is like to be a black American living in this country in this day and age and the folks that are, you know, on the front lines in law enforcement and articulating what they have to go through. Um, you know, we got to get those two, two sides in a room and come up with a better solution. The, the last thing I'll say is, you know, I, I get asked a lot because I'm in the military, this question of kneeling and, and the flag. I was always brought up and raised of the flag, you know, represented the best of our country, um, you know, patriotism, you know, all of the, the values and ethos that kind of goes into being an American, not to mention 
uh, that it is uh, a, a reflection of those that have fought for our country in the past and those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice. You know, the last full measure of devotion, as uh, President Lincoln said. If I am a, a young black American in this country and I've experienced racism and bigotry and prejudice and all those things that are not what we are about as a country, you know, when that person looks at the flag, they might see something very, very different. Right. And I think it's important to kind of have that conversation of of what that looks like. In the end, I'm an eternal optimist when it comes to this country. I've learned a lot and I tried to do um, way more listening during this episode than speaking. And uh, mm. <laughs> I think um, that I don't know if everyone is taking the same advice. And you think that these protests will lead to um, structural changes or that they will slowly die out? and the things will continue the way they were before? I, I don't know. I'm 44. And, you know, just looking at like this compared to previous things, it feels different. How, uh, again, how, I think how do you think they are different? You know, and, and you are an historian, so. Yeah, so I'll just give you a couple anecdotes, which if you told me in 2019 that this would happen a year later, I would have told you I can't foresee that. If I would have told you that NASCAR was going to ban the Confederate flag at their events a year ago, you would have thought I was crazy. Um, you know, and I've spent a lot of time in the South. Um, you know, there's a lot of military bases in the South. So I spent a lot of time um, in the Sun Belt and in the South, uh, you know, and obviously NASCAR is, is, is big down there. So I, like I would have, I'm, I'm, I'm very surprised by that. And secondly, um, I don't know if you've recently seen, but the Marines have come out and have banned the use of the Confederate flag on any installation um, in, you know, barracks, on cars, in offices. And so, again, these are all kind of really interesting moves that I, I don't think would have happened without these protests and without uh, the outrage that occurred after George Floyd. Um, now, let, let me say this. You know, where does the pendulum end with some of these things? Right. And so I am I don't I don't have any heartburn at all about removing Confederate general statues um, in town squares and, and that sort of thing. I'm, if you ask me about Gettysburg, I think they should remain at Gettysburg because it's a national battlefield, it's a national monument. And that's the kind of place for those, those sorts of things. But on the on the statue question, I am I have zero heartburn uh, with that stuff being removed. All of those things I would tell you is, uh, I think, are good things. When you start talking about um, the more uh, extreme versions of some of these things, like there are, you know, uh, defund the police is obviously a very um, prominent subject. Again, I go back to my notion that I don't think any, you know, m most of us have zero clue what it takes to, to be a police officer in, in the inner cities. And so this notion that we're going to either remove police or you know, completely change, and uh, I'm sorry, not change, but uh, remove that system of law enforcement and replace it with community activities, to be honest, I think is also um, a pipe dream. Uh, do we need reform? A hundred billion percent. Uh, but this gets back to my notion of like, those two sides need to kind of get into yeah. this room. So that, that, for those reasons, I think that this is different from previous ones. Reform and training, maybe. Yeah. Hundred percent. Um, uh, you know, again, you know, it's funny to look at some of the the police forces that are in kind of suburbia, being outfitted with 
you know, uh, equipment that we were using in Iraq, you know, and uh, and what type of message is that sent to folks? Uh, But look, there are some places where the violence is at such a level where the police do need extra protection. And and I'm I'm all for I'm all for that. Um, I think both sides could benefit from from a little reform in the situation. Hmm. Hmm. Early on, you talked about the values which the flag represents. What are those values? So, I mean, it kind of bleeds into the question of, like, what is America, right? right? Um, And, you know, I have a separate answer for that. But just to answer your specific question, you know, it's things like freedom, opportunity, equality. I would also add kind of meritocracy um, to that. And again, these are all, when I say they're aspirational values, they are ideals that we strive for. I'm not saying that we are there yet. I don't know if we'll ever be there yet. Those are the things that I think what what America stands for. And, you know, I talked earlier about you can flick on the news and pick your poison, whatever, whatever you want to be outraged about, you can go find it. Look, there's a ton of stories out there of Americans doing fantastic things that are not being amplified. And, you know, it's funny, if you ever go to my social media feeds, you know, I used to be kind of a snarky. And, and so, um, and where should we find you? I mean, I'm on Facebook at Brian Price. Um, if you want my my business stuff, you can go take a look at. I think on Instagram, um, on Instagram, Twitter, and uh, uh, where else? Am I? You can go to Top Metal Game. But if you want to go to like my my personal stuff, it's at you know Brian Price. Um, and uh, on Twitter, it's Brian Price Seven. I used to be kind of snarky and, you know, I, I, I have a dry sense of humor. So I would kind of poke fun at stuff. And about six years ago, five years ago, I was like, man, there's so much negativity on, on social media right now. And so I made a conscious decision to change up how I, what, what, what did I put out there to the world? And I started a thing. Um, it's called, I just called it sports. So I would find these fantastic, like tear jerking, like, emotional people stories about sports like that represent the best of us like the best values that that we want taking care of each other sacrificing for others you know sacrificing for your teammates choosing the harder right over the easier wrong which is in the cadet prayer by the way and i would just write sports dot 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 and i would just leave it there and a cool thing happened because there was like a little mini movement that has taken place where other people will now send me things that say, hey, Brian, sports, and it's a clip of a story or a video, and it's like, man, we need more of that. <laughs> you know, We need more of that stuff populating our social media feeds. Um, and I, I'm not saying that we need to stick, stick our heads in the sand and you know, be Pollyannish about what's going on in the world. But uh, again, if all you do is watch you know, the news on whatever favorite news channel you have, you're going to be a pretty negative, miserable person. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a big world out there. I hear you. And karma, right? You send good stuff, good stuff okay, come back to you. I hope. Yeah, and you allude to that early on. Um, I would love to know what America is to you. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> All right. So... When I thought about this question, obviously there's a number of different ways you can take it. And a lot of your guests have, you know, chosen various aspects of it. But when I sat down and I thought about this, I, I wrote this and, you know, I, 
I think what is even better is a poem that I'm going to share with you, which you may have heard before, but maybe not. And so when I think of what, what America means to me, I wrote, it's the greatest experiment the world has ever known, where we are chasing an ideal that we may never achieve, but it's an ideal that is worth fighting for and worth dying for. So here's my poem. It's by Langston Hughes, um, which I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him, but he was a, a black American in the you know, early half of the 20th century. And this poem, I definitely recommend you look up the whole thing. I'm not going to read all of it just for time purposes, uh, but it was written in 1936. Okay. So it's not, it's not recent, but I think it's, it's telling. And it, it, it kind of puts in poetry form what I just shared with you. So I'm going to read a, a couple snippets. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plane seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by any above. It never was America to me. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again. America. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Wow. Very, very timely. It's when you read the whole poem, um, it, it speaks to that. The fact that everybody has bought into this American dream. And everybody's willing to fight for that dream, but that dream isn't a reality. And and it, and there's a lot of people that um, you know feel that that dream is hypocritical or not serving them and are and are upset. If we're not there yet, it's still a worthwhile fight to try to get there. And so, like to me, that's a real. That's not a like a warm and fuzzy patriotic poem, but it's also not a you know to me it's like it's <laughs> it's the best articulation of what I was trying to say in my in my faulty words, but Langston Hughes is a better way of saying it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Would you have any books or movie that our audience should uh, read or watch? So in terms of the books, and I think I shared this with you beforehand, you're like the modern day um, Alex de Tocqueville uh, from France and his great book, Democracy in America. So it, that might be an interesting book to kind of to go through. He was trying to understand America and American culture, you know, many, many moons ago. And now you're trying to kind of do the same thing. So I thought that was interesting. For those that might want to know a little bit about that meritocracy that I was talking about at West Point and um, the microcosm of the country, there's a great book called Absolutely American by David Lipsky, which, again, paints a pretty realistic, both good and bad, of, of what life is like up there. 
Um, and then from a Ron Chernow's autobiography on George Washington is, is, is pretty amazing called Washington on life. And so that's, that's another book that I would definitely recommend a movie that represents the best of us in America. There's a couple out there. If you want a military movie, um, that talks about kind of the greatest generation and what that was like, I think saving private Ryan is probably a, mm. a really good start yeah, by good one, yeah. Steven Spielberg. Okay, great. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing all this with us today. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thanks. Can I share with you a quick story about uh, George Washington? But to me, it kind of speaks to a lot of the craziness that's going on. And when you talk about true leadership, this, this is definitely it. After the Americans had this great victory against the British and the war was essentially over, talking about Yorktown, I think a lot of people thought the war was over and that the Americans had won. And yet we were on very tenuous ground at that point. And so fast forward to, you know, two years to 1783, Washington was actually based just north of West Point, actually, in a place called Newburgh, New York. At this time, our government, you know, was essentially dysfunctional. They could not pay the soldiers because the Articles of Confederation banned taxing on the people. And so there was no real money. They had promised to pay veterans of the war a half wage, and that had never occurred. And on top of that, you had reportedly a third of the Washington's forces did not have shoes. And mm. so, you know, here we are about to take down at the time, you know, the world's one of the superpowers represent France. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we were at this, at this big moment. And Washington catches wind that there were senior leaders in his outfit were circulating a letter to organize essentially what was a military coup to go down to Philadelphia to take over the government and demand that they get paid and, you know, they get uh, clothed and, you know, treated with respect. And at the time, you can imagine, like, after, you know, fighting for, uh, you know, at that time, seven years or so. There was a lot of support for it, the soldiers who had left their families and and were had fought for this country and that were not being treated properly. And so there was a lot of groundwell support for it. But Washington catches wind of this and he's old in age. And so he calls for all officers to to meet in this evening. And he comes in. He wants to read a letter uh, that he was talking to somebody about. And so he he's kind of fumbling with the letter. He can't read it because of his eyesight. And he, he puts on his, his bifocals and he says, gentlemen, you must now pardon me, for I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in service to my country. And then he goes on to talk about essentially, I'm paraphrasing Washington at this point, like we didn't fight this war. We didn't do all this stuff for this great experiment of America to go back to what would have happened in Europe, to go back to a military dictatorship or military rule of government, that if this whole thing is going to work at this troubled time, we need to respect the civilian rule of authority, and that that's what makes this whole experiment different. I don't know if anybody else other than Washington could have made that happen at that point because he was so respected. He was obviously a military general. He did come from aristocracy, but he could relate to you know, the common man. And when I look at what our country, you know, when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, and when I see these people get put in power of young democracies, that pull for centralization, that pull to 
centralize power and to and to become corrupt are so overwhelming that like it's failed in both of those countries. You know, this we can't just take this experiment and outsource it like we thought we could. And yet here we are in America and we had that leader at that time make that decision. And I wonder if where we would be today if that decision wasn't made. Yeah.